And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Greetings and welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Mike Trout is coffee. At Starbucks with a double latte, skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. (laughs) Greetings and welcome to Starkville presented by TAPS. Check out TAPS Project 70, celebrating 70 years of TAPS baseball cards. Also, check out the Athletic Baseball Show, A, because it is so good, and B, because that's where you find our show. We do Starkville every Tuesday as part of the Athletic Baseball Show. So let me introduce myself. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for the Athletic. And once again, I am joined by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer Doug Glanville. And Doug, let's right off the top. I understand that you have uncovered a hidden new feature in the new iPhone update that you want us yeah. all to be aware of. What do you got? Um, amazing. Yeah, it's this great new update uh, that uh, comes. It sort of gives Siri some advanced information. I thought, you know, Siri seems to know everything, so yes. I, I tested it out. And you know, every night I, when I go to sleep, I, I set my alarm, and I have like a bedtime thing. It comes on usually pretty early, you know, 6.45, whatever it is. Amazingly, I did the, the menu, I pulled it down, and it said you're allowed to set it to a Major League Baseball no-hitter. I mean, <laughs> it's amazing. Every day there's a no-hitter, so you can just you can just set your phone to it. So I, I feel great. I mean, I'm waking up every day. Sometimes I'm waking up in the middle of the night. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. So I, I just, you know, there's so many of them, I just don't know what to do. Too, actually, it's waking me up too much, actually. Too many alarms going off. Doug, before we get to our special guest, Hein Bloom, I'm turning to you for wisdom, my friend, because you are a player, you're a writer, you know the rules. So it stands to reason that nobody can explain to all of us how the unwritten rules work better than you. And like you know the reason we're talking about this, right? It had to do with a certain home run that was hit last week that sounded just like this. Oh, he loaded up. Mercedes tattoos it to center. It is gone. There you go. A 3-0 swing. And it's 16-4. So that was Williams Astadio, who is not a pitcher but was pitching, giving up a home run to your mean Mercedes on a pitch clocked at 47 miles <laughs> per hour in a 15 to 4 game and like when I saw it at the time I thought that was kind of fun but then Tony Larusa who was your mean Mercedes manager set us all straight 
I was upset because that's not a time to swing three and old. Yermin was locked into he and Estudillo. You know, they, they know each other, but he, he missed a three and old hit sign with that kind of lead. That's just, it's not over. That's just sportsmanship, respect for the game, respect for your opponent. He made a mistake. There'll be a consequence that he has to uh, endure here uh, within our family. But, uh, you know, it won't happen again. Okay, let me give my big picture reaction to this first. Uh, I have a lot of respect for Tony La Russa. He's had a Hall of Fame career, and he spent decades in the game thinking about baseball in a certain way, and that way is basically framed by the era that he came up in. I get all that, but this, I think, is where his nine years away from the dugout, away from the clubhouse, show up. What's been the biggest shift in the culture inside those dugouts and those clubhouses in those nine years, I think it's this. I think the players now define how the game is played, not the unwritten rule book that Tony grew up reading. So, Doug, I'm sure, being the learned scholar that you are, you've read <laughs> every word of the unwritten rule book, but I think there's a new edition, and Tony never got his copy. So, <laughs> so what do you think? I mean, Jason, there's a new edition every year, yeah. <laughs> maybe every every month, you know, it changes. And there are aspects of it that stand the test of time, for sure. Uh, I, look, I, I know there's been tons of debate, and there always will be. It's kind of f- what's fun about baseball. But I do have a certain respect for unwritten rules. And I'm not saying that I agree with LaRusse's approach here, but it's more that unwritten rules exist throughout our lives, all of our lives. We, we experience this. We don't write everything down that's important to us. Uh, you know, I have dinner every night with my kids or, you know, and I'm not saying they're saying, well, here, I'm going to here, read this document. Uh, you don't get up during, you know, until everybody's seated or whatever. You, you know, there's all kind of rules that we, we go through our whole life that are based on certain traditions and etiquettes, things you want to pass down, things you're addressing in larger society. Uh, that, that's all part of it. And most of what matters isn't actually written down. And, and I think the heart of unwritten rules aren't just about being stodgy or stuck in the past. Some of it relates to respecting your opponent, respecting the game, just respect in general. And I don't think there's anything wrong with attempting to share that amongst players and generations around the game to reflect a, a collective sensibility around things that are important. I don't, I don't have a problem with that in a general. Now, yes, the issue is when it's culturally incompetent, right? You're not adapting to changing demographics or history. I think it's an issue when you uh, you, you make it sort of this dogmatic space and, and you're kind of inflexible about understanding how it leaves certain people out, whatever it may be. There are ways. So, so I do respect that you have them because of the aforementioned reasons, but I think you also hit it on the head that this generation, this time is like no other. Uh, you know, one, one thing that really underscores this is Fernando Tatis Jr. They, they, there's an interview with all these players around the league who asked who the most who the most exciting player is. It's Tatis Jr. by his peers. They appreciate it. Uh, you know, sure, you don't want to give up a home run to him, but Trevor Barrow did, and he, he celebrated his antics and his things. And I, I think that's... That's what will allow it to sustain when you have really respected players across the game saying, this is okay. We, we need to loosen up a little bit, whatever it may be. So it, it's it's different than, you know, 
hitting someone in the back or, you know, you know, there's all kinds of variations of this. And the next generation is here, right? And they're young and they're diverse and they want to be included and they want baseball to be fun and not stuck in, in, in a time which didn't was the exact opposite of what I just mentioned. And La Russa, you know, has been in that era. And yeah, hey, I played against him a million years. I, I know this guy's a genius in baseball. I've read books. I, I get it. Uh, but the dogma and the sort of the positioning that's sort of like, you know, my way, the highway, or there's this one way to do it, or all these things really starts to look out of touch when you when you marry that on what else is changing around the game off the field too. And I think he's I think he's made some adjustments in certain things playing with like a Tim Anderson's on his team. And they're a very good team this year. So we'll see how, how much he, he continues to adapt. I think it's hard because he's been incredible for his whole career. Uh, but the world's changing around you. And, and that's a bad feeling for all of us, right? It changes and you, what you used to do may not be relevant anymore, but that's part of progress. Yeah, I, I, you know, I have a couple things here that I think we should try to think through. And they are to, all right, how do we know when this applies? <laughs> Which rules apply when? And uh, like know your team. Know, <laughs> know what your team is all about. And... The White Sox, when I watch them, you referenced the Padres, but you also referenced Tim Anderson. These two teams, to me, are the ultimate let the kids play teams, aren't they? Like when I think of that slogan, I think of those teams. I start with them because they're literally defining that. Um, I, I, I I know I've mentioned this before. My my daughter, Hallie, was part of the, uh, the group that worked on the let the kids play campaign and we talked about it at the time about what a, a a major cultural shift that was going to be because this was a commercial it wasn't a nike commercial <laughs> okay this was a major league baseball message it came from the sport it came from the top it was a statement saying it's now okay to be you and the white Sox have embodied that so there's that um, we've seen, heard how many of their players asked about this since who has said, yeah, Tony had this one, right? Your mean was wrong. None of them. They've all <laughs> backed their teammate because that's how right. they go about it. Um, and that's, and that's unheard of Jay. I mean, that, that's also a shift. It's unheard of. And, you know, I think that it's, it's almost like, you know, Tony Roos is like the, whatever i mean i'm 50 right but you know whatever the 70 year old parent and as teenage kids you're just like trying to like rein them in and they're just like whatever you know like they're just <laughs> doing what they do yeah and he's trying to you know hold on to something that understandably has certain importance but uh but they're 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 doing their thing i mean tim anderson <laughs> it's, it's like in spite of so hey that, that's where we are today and they're going to continue to do it i think we i think we actually need two different sets of unwritten rules because there's got to be a separate set for when weon's Ostadio goes to the mound. Okay. Like at that point, <laughs> right. martial law is in effect because they don't care how many runs they lose by. They don't care how many runs you score. Like, stop it. Like, I, I need another uh, book project idea at some point. If I were to write the unwritten rule book, doesn't oh, that, that wouldn't that be a runaway bestseller? 
Make it work. Uh, we, I told you we need to do that or and a dictionary. <laughs> I'm telling you. We, okay. When we have time. All right. When we have time. We have nothing else to do. Uh, okay. <laughs> Later on in this show, I'm going to let you, Doug Glanville, do your rant on a written rule that I know is your very favorite written rule <laughs> in all the written rule books. Uh, I, let me just say to everybody, listen to this. You do not want to miss the Doug Glanville rant. But before we let him just go off, we need to welcome in this week's very special guest. It's the Red Sox Chief Baseball Officer, Heim Bloom. Heim, welcome to Starkville. Thank you. Great to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here. Is there any truth to the rumor that you just agreed to do this because you still feel guilty that you never hired Doug Glanville <laughs> as the manager in Tampa Bay. I, I cannot confirm or deny that. <laughs> just can't comment on that, really. <laughs> this is a man who has been asked many questions <laughs> that he cannot confirm well, or given, deny. Given Kevin Cash has, you know, rattled off 11 in a row in Tampa, you know, I, I can accept my defeat on this uh, <laughs> this case <laughs> yeah. i would say and i love doug but i would say i think we made a good choice <laughs> yeah it worked out okay hey we'll ask you about that fabled interview with glanville in a little bit but first let's talk about your team man because uh you know i think the whole world felt like it it expected the red sox to finish fourth in the al east and you spent most of the last six weeks in first place is there anything about the way your team has played uh, that's been more than you would have expected. Yeah, well, we have the uh, you know the good fortune to be talking right after uh, slipping out of first place. Hopefully, we can get <laughs> back in there uh, as soon as possible. And look, it's a long season. Obviously, there's a lot of ups and downs. We're thrilled with how the group has played coming out of the gate. Hopefully, we can keep playing like this deep into the summer. Um, but you you know we know the AL East is going to be a grind. I've spent basically my whole career in this division. It is always tough. Um, and hopefully we can continue to be a part of the reason why. Uh, and, you know, it really just beats you up for six months and you have to rise to the occasion day after day. you got to find different ways to do that. And one thing that has stood out to me with this group, you know, we knew, uh, and I felt this way since I came to the organization, the frontline talent, uh, you know, it, it, in our group is outstanding. And what really was going to determine how far we could get this season was basically how, how much we could lengthen our roster, how our depth performed, how we could build a roster that was going to be resilient and able to take on, uh, you know, the bumps and bruises of a season and the ups and downs and have different guys that could step in. And so we tried to do that on the positional side by adding uh, versatile players who, you know, could make sure that uh, whatever was going on with our club, that Alex is able to put a lineup out there every day that we can be proud of. And then on the pitching side, uh, just to give us different ways to withstand uh, the rigors of the season. And what stood out to me is that we have had a very consistent group. This group from day one in spring training has attacked us with energy. There's been a great sense of purpose. And they come to play every day, and they've just found ways to win. We've come from behind so many times. And, you know, I think, that, that, you know, when you have a talented group that, comes to play every day the way these guys have, you're going to find ways to win some of those games that could go either way, and they've done that so far. You know, I think what surprised me most is your rotation. Um, you know, last year's rotation uh, had an ERA way over five. I think the relievers pitched more innings than the starters. This year, you're third in the league in innings pitched from your starting pitchers, and you're 18-9 and nine 
in games started by, I think it's fair to classify as your third, fourth, fifth starters, Nick Pavetta, Martin Perez, Garrett Richards. Um, who deserves the credit for what you've gotten out of the quote-unquote back of your rotation? Well, I think first and foremost, the guys who are doing it. Um, that, that's that's kind of a, an easy answer in that they've gone out there, they've taken the ball, and they've produced. And the lion's share of the credit goes to them. But, you know, I think also I would give a lot of credit to various people on our staff. Uh, you know, certainly Alex, Dave Bush, Kevin Walker, uh, Jason Veritek, the way that they've worked together to, uh, you know, give these pitchers um, a game plan and help them uh, essentially really know who they are when they take the mound uh, and how they're going to get you out. And I think for some of these guys that maybe have had some ups and downs to work you know, with our staff towards figuring out an identity, figuring out a game plan, figuring out something that worked for them, whether it was a mechanical adjustment, uh, you know, like, like Garrett did, or, uh, you know, you know, really, I, I think in many ways, kind of a mental adjustment, a deep breath, uh, you know, that I think we were able to give Nick Pavetta, the lion's share of the credit goes to the players themselves, but it's been a great team effort along with our medical, our strength and conditioning staff, just to get them in a good place to perform and get them feeling good about themselves when they run out there. Yeah, and, and Haim, you know, you're building this and making this calculus off of a very unusual data set that was 2020 baseball. What went into how to evaluate how this pitching would perform or just overall your talent assessment given such a, a quote, small sample size? Yeah, it was tough. And look, we're not alone in that challenge. That's something that the whole industry faced and just trying to figure out how to handle 2020. I think in most cases, you know, it's, there's some science to it. There's also a little bit of art. In most cases, we tried not to overweight 2020. It was a short season. And there were certain situations, you, you, you can look at the position player side, probably J.D. Martinez being the biggest one of them, where we basically felt the conditions of the season were so unusual that you couldn't hold them against a player with an established track record. Um, at the same time, you know, you're seeing certain things from guys uh, that really it, it was hard to ignore, even in a short season. So we tried to stay relatively consistent with how we uh, looked at that season, but also just use good judgment and really take a hard look at the circumstances that everybody was in. Is there reason to place more or less weight on what they did in 2020? There's no question it's a challenge. It's an experience, obviously, we hope we will never repeat. Uh, the, the the least of the problems with this pandemic has been what it's done to baseball. There's obviously much bigger issues in the world. Uh, but, you know, it did it, it, it did create this unwanted natural experiment that affected everybody differently. You know, these guys are human beings. We all went through some difficult stuff in the pandemic. And I think especially the quick ramp up to last season, that affected different players differently. Uh, that much was pretty clear just watching them. You know, you, you hope everybody got through it healthy. And I know some guys didn't. But even if you did get through it healthy, you might have been a different player for the entire season just because you didn't get to prepare the way that you normally would. And we have to apply some good judgment and also a, a, a large dose of humility and just how much we can really understand about what that does to people. You, you know, there's been so much talk about the injury rate that we've seen so far this year. Do you think it's fair to connect the dots between the injuries early in this season and the season that we had last year? 
Probably in some cases. Uh, I don't know if any of us is smart enough to know exactly in which cases. You know, the the beginning of a season is always a, a delicate time, especially for pitchers as guys are ramping up from from an off season. It's arguably the toughest part to manage when you're trying to get guys uh, ready to be healthy for an entire summer. Uh, so I think we'd be silly to think that it did not play some role in, in what we've seen, but I, I'm not sure we can know exactly how much of you know this rash of injuries depend on that. You know, I'm thinking in some ways that, like, you're probably really grateful for a season like this one, considering what you went through last year. I look back at your first few months on the job. I honestly can't think of anyone in your line of work who had a welcome to any job like you had. You had to change managers. Uh, You you traded Mookie. You you deal with a a sign-stealing investigation of your own team, which took place before you got there. Opening day canceled. Your ace needs Tommy John surgery. Like, did I miss anything? Did you get served a bowl of bad chowder or anything like that? I mean, other than that, it was pretty uneventful. Yeah, look, we don't get to pick uh, in life or in this game what challenges come our way. I, I think one thing that stood out to me, and it's, it's honestly the most frustrating part of all of this, has been that because of what the pandemic requires us to do, I haven't gotten to know the group of people that I work with as well as I would like. And really getting to know people and really building meaningful relationships and understanding people does not happen in the things that are on your calendar. It happens in those spaces between the things that are on your calendar. And that's been what's been taken away from us. Uh, So that has made the whole thing harder. But what's also stood out to me is how the organization kind of rallied together. Uh, people here, you know, the number one word you hear after Red Sox within the walls here is family. And people here take that seriously. They mean it. Uh, and I think it's a lot of what has led to the success of, of the past couple decades. Yeah, and Haim, you know, speaking of family and just sort of how you've been able to manage and put it together, Alex Cora returns. What was that process to, you know, all the things we just listened listened to that you went through to decide that the leadership needed to flow through Alex Cora. Yeah, it uh, look, it's obviously a huge decision for the organization. Um, you know, it was something when we when we got to the end of the season um, and decided um, that although we had the highest regard for the job that Ron Renicki did for us last year and continue to, uh, that it was right for us to uh, you know to, to look for a new manager. You know, it's it's a huge decision for the organization, and obviously the circumstances surrounding Alex's departure uh, made that kind of a unique type of consideration. I basically felt that at the end of the day, that just like any candidate we might consider, Alex deserved to be looked at in full for all of his wonderful strengths, and uh, you know, for for some of the things that uh, you know that he's that that he's not as proud of and to be considered in full just like any candidate uh, for every part of who he is. And so that's what we tried to do. And, you know, the the strengths obviously are well known and speak for themselves. We had to consider obviously some of the other things about him. But at the end of the day, uh, the goal was to find, you know, the best manager for the Boston Red Sox. And I I felt that that was Alex Cora. You you know, I want to ask you a little bit about the process in hiring Alex uh, Heim. You use words like intense and emotional to describe that process. I I don't know that I've ever heard those words used at a press conference announcing the hiring of any manager. 
Why was this so intense and emotional? Well, you know, I, I can sort of answer that in, in, in two ways. You know, one specifically with Alex, uh, obviously considering him, uh, you know, was so unique for me. First of all, a lot of people in the organization knew him much better than I did. I got to work with him for just a few months and, you know, not during the, 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 the roller coaster ride of a season, you know, before the Houston report came down and he left. And, you know, then we were really unable to, to talk about any of what had happened. Uh, so, you know, that process was our first opportunity to talk about a lot of things. And, um, you know, th this kind of segues into the other way I can answer this question, which is this game obviously is an intense game. And, and I don't mean to put more significance on uh, the game of baseball than it probably should receive. This is not life or death. But everybody who's doing this, uh, we put our whole selves into this. And we take it very seriously and we bring everything we've got to this. So when you're talking about um, a decision of this of this magnitude, somebody that you're going to work with this closely, someone that's going to be right there in the foxhole with you, it is going to be an emotional decision almost, you know, no matter what the factors are, because you want to be all in and you want everybody all in and all in, not just uh, by themselves, but with and for each other. So you know, it's not just about the X's and O's. It's about who is this person and, and what kind of partner are, are we going to have and what kind of leader are we going to have uh, for our organization? So I think that's going to be an intense and emotional process, even irrespective of those uh, special circumstances surrounding Alex's story. And I think the specifics of Alex's story, the fact that we had not talked in a while, um, that, that, that things had played out so unusually throughout 2020, just ratcheted that up. But you know, I, I thought really that was necessary. It, you know, if we're going to be all in and we're going to really partner together and trust each other, then everything has to be out on the table. And uh, it was really important, I think, for, for the conversation to, to be had that way. Yeah, I, I know that you, you flew to Puerto Rico to talk to him. And what kinds of questions did you ask him about what happened in Houston? And if he hadn't answered those questions the way he did, would he be your manager now? Well, I, I don't want to get into the specifics of what uh, really should remain a private conversation. Um, you know, I think it was important uh, that it stayed private. And I even felt that way uh, after after the conversation within our walls, uh, that it really wasn't something that the contents of which needed to be broadcast, um, you know, because it was designed to be a private conversation. But, you know, what I can say is, you know, again, I think this is true with any candidate, just the shape that it took with Alex uh, was a little different because of how the whole story had unfolded, that you you really don't want anything held back. You want to know uh, everything you can about, um, you know, in his case, what had happened and also who he is. And even though uh, the organization knew him well, you know, you go through what he went through last year and you have to confront what he had to confront last year and it, it's going to change somebody. And that is going to be an intense experience in its own right for anybody to go through. And, you know, the, there was a lot to unpack with that. Um, and, you know, just wanted to have the, the most real, most candid conversation that I possibly could with him. And, you know, Doug and I both work with Alex at ESPN and, you know, we, we know how smart he is, uh, how good he is at connecting with people of just every possible size, shape, background. Um, 
we actually probably spent more time working with him than you did. So what do you know about Alex Cora now that makes him good at his job that you didn't know before? You know, it's been interesting seeing him, uh, you know, through spring training and as we get into the season and, and having that experience for the first time. Uh, it's not that I didn't know this uh, before. It's just when you live it every day, you know, things stand out to you um, that you can only appreciate really experiencing them. And you use the word, uh, you know, you use the word connection. And that that is what has stood out to me. The ability to really connect with people, with everybody uh, that he works with, players, staff, uh, and the way that he builds those connections on a daily basis. Sometimes it's through focused conversations, sometimes it's through casual interaction, uh, but it's real and it builds trust and in everything that we do. And this doesn't just apply to field managers, it applies to everything we do as an organization. It doesn't matter what you know, it doesn't matter what ideas you have. What matters is the trust you have built with the people you need to work with uh, to make those ideas a reality. And if you don't have that, you know, nothing else really matters. And his ability to build those connections, uh, to really um, understand people to uh, and, and to connect with them is really special. Well, and Haim, what, what's the difference? You know, you think about Tampa, your experience, and now Boston. What's been that Boston X factor that you found out about in running this team in this particular city with this particular history? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because obviously I went from one organization to another that in many ways couldn't be in more different circumstances, uh, but also have some similarities in terms of the culture of the organization and you know the, the, the way that the people who work in the organization feel about their teammates and feel about the organization. Uh, but my, my thought process is generally that, look, every organization, every situation is unique. Everybody's got advantages. Everybody's got uh, some disadvantage that, that, that they have to contend with. And, you know, you, you need to embrace, you know, every part of the challenge in front of you in order to have success with it. And we uh, play in a city and a region where the passion for the game uh, I, I think is, you know, there might be some places that have as much passion for the game as New England does. There, I don't know that there's anybody that any area that has more passion for the game than New England does. And that definitely creates, um, you know, it, it, there's a lot of eyeballs on the team and there's a lot of noise surrounding the team, but it also creates this amazing feeling where you know this matters a lot to a lot of people and they just want you to do well. And you get up every day feeling that and feeling like you have a chance to do something really meaningful for a lot of people who really care about this team. And when things are going well, it's going to feel great. And when things aren't going well, they're not going to be that happy with you. And there's going to be a lot of noise in that direction too, but you can't have one without the other. And at the end of the day, you do, you, you know, for me, I, I love that so many people care and you want them to care and you just, you, you just want to deliver them something they can be proud of. So, so obviously you want to make these people happy. So by, so to do that, you started your career in Boston by trading Mookie. <laughs> okay. And that's the kind of thing some people are never going to forget or forgive. Uh, you know, I remember you talking once about actually saving letters that you got from fans <laughs> right after that happened. Uh, what do those letters say? And why would you do that? <laughs> yes, well, some of them, some of them did say that. And I recognize that with a move like that, 
Um, there are going to be people who understand it. Um, there might be people who agree with it. Those people aren't usually the ones that are writing you letters to tell you how, uh, how happy they are. <laughs> um, and that there are going to be people who um, don't understand it, don't want to understand it, or do understand it and just flat out disagree. And, and they may not forgive you for, uh, for it. And, you know, if you can't handle that, then this is not the line of work for you. <laughs> I, I think I've tried to be honest with people about what the thought process was behind that. And, you know, the number one thing is that everything that we do is designed with the goal of putting us in position to win as much as possible for a long, long time. And we wouldn't have made that trade if we didn't feel that it was in our interest to do that to try to win as many championships as we can over the next five ten you know however many years um and i know that's hard with a player as great as mookie for people to understand but um it's honest it's it's how we felt you know given where the organization stood what our outlook was uh short term long term that we needed to uh really think long term about this and be open to a variety of moves that would put us on more solid footing long-term and as hard as this one was we felt that it that it it met those criteria and, and it was a move that was in our interest to do so i recognize that it's emotional look it's emotional for us too i've been a part of my career of some really emotional moves that are not at all satisfying in the present but when you believe that they are the right thing for the organization to accomplish the goals that we have in the long term i think you owe it to not just your organization but ultimately your fan base to do those things you know i, I one thing i want our fans to be able to believe um, is that whether they agree or disagree with something that we do, that we're not going to back down from something that we believe is the right thing for the organization, even if it's unpopular in the moment, that we can't allow that unpopularity to push us off of something that we really think is the right thing. And I would hope at least that even when people disagree with things that they do, that they can respect that that's where we're coming from and that we're willing to do those things that might be painful up front if in the long run we believe that they're going to help the organization and, and so you really did save letters like people still write letters right <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and you would open the envelope and read the letters and then save them <laughs> i do although i i i actually suspect that somebody is screening my mail because uh, th there have to be things that have been expressed uh, whether on that move or some other things that uh that I have not seen. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's helpful to kind of hang on to those just to, to have a little reminder of a, how much it matters to people and, and B sort of what the, what the emotions were around certain things. Like you only, um, you only live once and uh, this goes fast. Life, life moves very quickly and it's amazing how much we can forget about how we felt in the moment or how things uh you know were resonating in the moment there's certainly some things about the reaction to that deal and some plenty of experiences in my baseball career that i'll never forget but there are little things that uh you know you might might wake up in 5 10 15 years and uh and not remember as much as you think you do so uh some of the some of the more memorable uh notes that i've received i do hang on to looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, Haim, I guess, you know, one thing that'd be interested in this sort of analytics revolution within, say, Mookie Betts is what do you think is most misunderstood about the weight of having a star player, you know, a singular player that's hard to convey because, as you mentioned, all the emotions. What do you think is most misunderstood about the weight of that from an analytics or future planning standpoint? Yeah, I don't know that... uh... I would say that it's necessarily misunderstood because I think people do, you know, the, the, the impact that those stars have is obvious and people do, you know, value that even with a passing glance. And we certainly value it internally. Look, you can only put nine guys out there at a time. Um, so you, I recognize you can talk all you want about depth and, you know, having value up and down the roster and having, having stars is a huge part of, of how you can win. It's not the only way but it is a huge part of how you can win. So I, I don't know necessarily that that's misunderstood. Um, you know, what I think was important in that situation was just understanding where we were and, um, you know, what the what the roster looked like and was going to look like, you know, a, a, around uh, the stars that we had and, and how that whole equation was gonna add up, not just in the present, but as we look down the road. Um, I, you know, I really think this game is hard enough that in order to, build a great team and a team that can be great for a long time. You really need to check a lot of boxes. You need a deep roster. You also need a roster that, that has some star power and you need to be able to do it all. That's just where the bar is in the game. You look at the teams that survive this grind that get to the very end or the last team standing and they are doing a lot of things, right? This is not a sport where one guy can just carry you the whole way. Um, it is it's certainly true that uh, that you need players to really rise to the occasion and and stand tall and do a lot of great things. But you need contributions up and down your roster. You need a lot of really, really good players. Um, so, you know, I don't know that the that the value of stars is misunderstood. I think people really appreciate those guys and rightly so. Um, we have some incredible, incredible players in our game, whether guys who have been around for a long time that have already have Hall of Fame resumes or young players who may have you know just in terms of sheer talent uh for the game as much talent as anybody who's ever played uh that's what's going to drive our sport what's going to drive the entertainment value of our sport um but one of the wonderful things about baseball is just how for as individual as a lot of the things in our game are it is so much of a team sport in that uh you can't just give the ball to the same guy every time uh down the court right you get to hit when it's your turn to hit and there may be an enormous spot in a game where it's up to somebody who's not one of your stars and you're going to you're going to win because those guys do special things too all right since doug mentioned analytics let me ask you about analytics um there's always going to be a segment of fans who see red if you if they just hear the word analytics (laughs) i find they're usually fans of teams that finish last Uh, Like, do you ever find yourself trying to defend analytics to people who think that they're ruining your team or ruining the game? 
I hope not exactly in that way. And I know the term itself can be a loaded term for some people. I, I, I think you know, probably the easiest way to, um, to speak to that is I think to think about it in two ways. One, just to think about it in terms of information. Who would not want as much information as they could possibly get their hands on, right? I, I, it's, I think it's, it'd be hard for anybody to argue that they would want the team that they loved to have less information or worse information than the teams that it's competing against. Wait, do you ever, do you ever listen to talk radio? <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I think people can certainly argue about the value of certain types of information, what you do with it. But the idea of, hey, I want my favorite team to have less information than the opposition, I, that, I find that hard to, to to get my arms around. And especially, look, if we can use this information and have hard evidence that certain things are likely or less likely to work, I think we'd be silly not to factor that in. And I know there are people who are going to disagree. Uh, that That's something that, you know, I'm, I'm willing to stand up for is that, uh, you know, when there's evidence for things, uh, we should be willing to follow that evidence. Um, so, you know, I, I try, I think it's better to think about it in that way. Think about it as information, think about it as evidence, uh, rather than a term that might be loaded for some people. You know, and the other, the other way I, I would look at it is there's a lot of different things we need to do well as an organization to be able to win. We should try to be the best at everything. I think that's what we owe our fans is to try to dominate every area of the battlefield. So information's part of that. There's certainly other parts of that that have nothing to do with numbers. Um, but, you know, we want to be as good as we can be in every possible area. So if, if analytics, if information is one of those areas, why shouldn't we be the best? Why shouldn't we be striving to have the best process, the best information? Now, what that means is going to be different, uh, obviously, in a lot of situations, and people have different strong opinions on that. But, you know, I think we owe it to ourselves as an organization and we owe it to the people who follow our team to try to be the best we can at every single thing that we do. And, you know, certainly using information is one of those. So, I mean, Haim, what do you think, I guess, gets lost in translation the most when you talk about that information and that what is delivered on the field from the sense of entertainment? Uh, because, you know, the information leads, you know, guys throwing 95, pitching two innings. And the next guy comes in and strikeouts and home runs. And what do you think that connection is? And is there anything you can see in the future to sort of shifting that a little bit to kind of marry the two? Yeah, you know, this is obviously a, a huge topic of conversation in the game right now. And I think, you know, that there are some there's some validity uh, to the notion that 30 teams just battling each other to try to win has not always led to the most entertaining version of our game that we can have. Mm -hmm. I still think that we don't need to make apologies for our sport. I mean, baseball is the greatest game on earth. I know I'm biased. I know not everybody's going to agree with that and that's fine, but you know, that's what I feel. And I feel people who are enthusiastic about the game shouldn't forget to say that too, but we are still in the entertainment business and we want this to be the most, most entertaining, most enjoyable uh, version of the game that we can possibly get to. And I do think we're seeing that some of the things that teams are doing purely in the interest of winning. And look, that's our job. Our job is to try to win. And we're not, uh, our job is not to trade off uh, winning in order to make a, a prettier game. So when teams just from trying to win end up moving towards strategies uh, or towards a version of the game that is not as good as it can be, I think that is really a collective action problem. And that's something we need to step back uh, as a sport and uh, make structural changes 
you know, to what we're doing. And I, I actually am excited about some of the things that we're experimenting with in the minor league, some of the different things that we're looking at, because we also owe it to, <clears throat> excuse me, to ourselves, to, you know, as an industry, as a game, to, to make an exciting game that really allows players to display their athleticism, you know, a game that moves, a game that's full of action. Um, and we should be willing to look at changes, uh, you know, on a, on a league-wide level that, steer the game towards what we want it to be we, we could spend hours talking about just this one topic but I, I don't want this conversation to go by without asking you a little bit about your background because you majored in latin classics at <laughs> yale i'm like that's amazing to me you, you can't possibly have made that choice because you thought when you went to school you were going to get out of school and run a baseball team i did know when i picked that major that i wanted to work in baseball um wow I was probably uh, stupid enough to to think that given how odd that goal was, that it didn't really matter what I majored in. I think with the benefit of hindsight, that almost certainly was not true. And I just got lucky. Um, But, you know, what it what it the one thing I will say about my major that and this is, you know, when I get asked, this is advice that I give is, you know, I, I don't think anybody should major in something that they're not interested in that they're not passionate about just just as a means to an end because there are so many things that your education can directly prepare you for but there are plenty of circumstances in this game that it can't and it's so important to develop really good critical thinking skills to be able to learn our game moves quickly Um, the industry is always changing you have to be able to adapt you have to be able to learn you have to be able to improve yourself improve uh, how you're operating and it's really important to develop the skills to be able to do that. And you can do that by studying a lot of different things. But I think it would be very hard to do that if you're studying something that you have zero passion for. Uh, so you, you can, you know, kind of crack open my head and figure out why I'm so bizarre <laughs> that I actually had a passion for this stuff. But I do think it helped develop uh, really good uh, critical thinking skills, or at least I hope it did, that I found uh, helpful as I've gone through my career. Is there any chance the Red Sox are going to have an Athenian culture night? <laughs> I wouldn't bet on it unless uh, now if there is a market out there in the city of Boston or in, in, in Red Sox Nation for that event, I'm sh- I, I wouldn't put it past uh, the wonderful people we have on our business side to uh, make that happen. But I'm guessing there's not enough of a, enough of an audience uh, to make it worthwhile. You never know if it involves Spanakopita. I'm in. I know that. <laughs> and you and Eric Neander were both interns with the Rays, and now you're running teams. What What was the strangest thing you were ever asked to do as an intern? I'm trying to think. Um, you could say, "What's the strangest thing Eric was ever asked to do?" Yeah, I, I you know, I can't think of anything that, that's too outlandish. Um, I, I will say, at that point in time, uh, you know, it was, it was such a wonderful experience because, you know, I, I was able to start my career really being on the ground floor of a massive organizational transformation. And you know, although uh, obviously the team had existed for a decent amount of time at that point. Uh, everything was being looked at fresh and, you know, it was this wonderful combination of people who were new, uh, like I was, like Eric was, people who had been in the organization, wonderful people who have been in the organization for the entire time that it's existed, many of whom are still there. Uh, and, and we were taking a fresh look at everything. So it was very um, entrepreneurial. It was 
really a, a roll up your sleeves atmosphere and let's just figure this whole thing out. So I was able to be exposed to a whole variety of things. And I got this wonderful education in so many different aspects of the game, just out of necessity, because uh, we were a very lean organization at the time. We weren't that built out. Uh, so I got to do a little bit of everything. And it's an experience that uh, is very atypical, especially the way the game is today, the way organizations are built out today. I'm so grateful that I had that experience. You know, when I ask people uh, who know you what I should ask you on this podcast, it was amazing to me how many of them said, he's the fastest eater I've ever known. <laughs> okay, so what's the fastest you've ever finished, like a, a big bowl of pasta when you went out to dinner? Um, I've never timed myself. You know, it's not, I don't need to do that competitive sport. It's just how I eat, you know, it's, and, it, and at times it is an advantage when you're in a hurry. It really doesn't, I, I don't need to make that much of an adjustment. Um, but it's not something that it's not something that I'm trying to do. It's just how I eat. And, uh, as you discovered, it's definitely something people, uh, people notice, uh, people like to talk about, um, well, you, but, go, uh, you gotta go up against Kobayashi man you gotta go against Kobayashi <laughs> it, man. <laughs> I don't have that level of skill like I've never really taken this down to a science uh, like I said I probably should eat more slowly but it's just how I eat <laughs> it's, it's okay you know Philadelphians are in a hurry to do everything anyway and yeah. you did grow up in Philadelphia so I, I guess we need to know who had a bigger influence on your love of baseball was it reading my pearls of wisdom in the Inquirer or watching Doug Glanville roam around center field? Ooh, good one. Um, <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> you, you're allowed to lie on this one. That's Gage, right. I'd that's probably fine. have to give you the nod. I'd probably have to give you the nod, but it's close. Nod. That sounds I'll like the right that. answer, don't you think, Doug? I, I accept that. I accept that. I read your <laughs> column before I was anywhere near veteran stadiums. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I'm honored. I'm honored that if I, if I had any effect on either of you, well, Jaime, well, I know we, we've talked, um, you know, speaking of growing up and we've had conversations, I know we were in Cuba together uh, at one point, uh, just about how baseball and sport just reflects some of the best of society when we think of teamwork and we think about equity and coming together. And today we happen to be speaking on the anniversary of George Floyd and how our country has really navigated that. And, you know, we've had a lot of conversations just around coming together and how we can do better. You know, you've taken some very strong proactive stances in Boston with the Red Sox to try to, you know, establish that we want to be part of the solution of, of bringing together people through sport. I mean, what has that been like? And I guess what inspired you to to be able to take those steps? Well, you know, I it's a big question. Um I would start by saying that I, I don't think we are anywhere near a solution that, you know, we, in terms of an organization or, you know, I personally uh, are, are anywhere near having done enough uh, to help uh, a host of issues uh, that we have a responsibility to help. So I don't think any pats on the back are in order for anything we have done. I think we are, we are trying to do the right thing. I think, you know, in our organization and, you know, people in the organization who have been here heck of a long, heck of a lot longer than I have, have been very vocal about this. We know that the Red Sox have uh, a history, you know, especially with regard to race that is shameful and that we have an extra duty on top of just doing the right thing generally to try to um, 
make up for that as much as we can. Uh, but I think, you know, some of the way that I try to approach uh, what I do, whether it's interpersonally with the people that I work with uh, that I'm responsible for, uh, or just the world at large is, you know, we are just playing a game. Obviously we're competing, you know, we're, we're trying to earn a living. We're trying to, we're trying to win baseball games, but we also have a responsibility to try to make the world a little better. And we have a platform to be able to do that. Uh, a lot of people in their jobs don't have the same platform that we have. You know, we have the ability to stand for something. And while we still owe it to uh, each other, to our organization, to our fans to compete and win, and we're always going to try to do that, we can do that at the same time as we try to make the world a little bit better. Uh, a lot of times those things go hand in hand. So regardless of, you know, what the issue is, I do think we have a responsibility to find those issues and, and try to do what we can. Uh, to make the world around us a little bit better. Now, like I said, I don't think I have done nearly enough. I don't think, you know, we, our organization, our entire sport has done nearly enough. There is so much more work that we have to do, uh, but we do have the ability to create some kind of positive change and we have a responsibility to do that because of our platform. Yeah, and, you, and with Bianca Smith, for example, just, you know, taking steps and hiring uh, diverse faces that are representative of, really what the game is about. You know, this is a game that has international components. Do you think of Jackie Robinson? Uh, and I know, you know, not saying, I know you're not trying to take credit for that in terms of this gigantic, you know, sway of shift, but you've made those those type of steps and you've seen talent where there's been blind spots before. Is there anything from where you grew up that that sort of, you had a vision for that? Well, I, I do think the way I was raised, the way, you know, the, the foundation my parents gave me, uh, I, I hope would would help me to do the right thing in that regard. Um, I certainly can't take any credit for Bianca for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, this wasn't something where I had to put a thumb on the scale and tell our people that, you know, we should be looking uh, to hire someone like Bianca. This was something that that our people drove and, and, and did themselves uh, because of the values that are that our group shares. The other thing I would say that, you know, and, and you touched on this in how you phrased that question that I think is really important here is uh, I think we have to actively correct the misconception that in trying to make hires like that, you will be, you know, somehow trading off quality or somehow lowering the bar. That is not the case. I think what we find in a lot of areas, I, I'm sure this is true in many industries, not just ours, is that you don't have to make those trade-offs, but that certain people are uh, certain demographics are overrepresented uh, certain demographics are underrepresented because there's all sorts of hidden barriers or at least hidden to hidden to us maybe hidden to me as a, as a white male in in trying to uh you know blaze those trails into the game and we are not going to uh get around those barriers without being really intentional uh, about trying to do that and really intentional where we look for talent because talent is there, it just might not, uh, you know, be coming to us as much because of some of those barriers that are in the way of, uh, of people making their way into the game. So we have to be aware of that. You know, we, we have to shine a light on that and we have to do what we can uh, very intentionally to make sure that we are creating pathways to this game for everybody. Uh, and those pathways come easier to some people than others and that's wrong and we need to do what we can you know to make sure it really is a level playing field because there's so much talent out there that is you know people who are passionate about working in this game that don't have equal access to opportunities in the game and we we have to be you know very uh intentional about changing that okay speaking of hiring 
After the 2014 season, Joe Madden and Andrew Friedman leave the Rays for parts unknown. Whatever happened to those guys, anyway? <laughs> and 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 you you were part of the the baseball ops team in Tampa Bay that had to look for a manager to replace Joe Madden, and you interviewed a guy named Doug Glanville. <laughs> so as you were, you were interviewing Doug, were you thinking this guy would make an awesome podcast host? <laughs> exactly. Uh, well. We already knew that because uh, Doug had already, uh, you know, made his way uh, in media uh, really impressively. Uh, that was part of why he was on our radar um, is some of some of what he had already put out there. Uh, so I didn't think of it in, specifically in terms of him being a podcast host. But if you had asked me, would Doug be able to host a pretty good podcast? I would have said yes. Um, not a requirement for the managerial position, um, but uh, I would have said yes. Uh, was there anything that Doug said in the interview that you still remember? Did you ask him about Tyra Banks or the running lane? No, you know, um, I don't remember any specific lines that he dropped in the interview other than just generally it being a, a, a great conversation. Um, and, yeah. you know, really, that was actually the first time that I had had a chance to, to speak with Doug. And, yeah. uh, well, the thing, and, and the thing about time, like, I, <laughs> I was totally blindsided, quite frankly, when I first got the call to even consider it. And I, I think I didn't call the raise back for like three days. Because I thought it was like, oh, I thought it was like an analytics job or something. I said, oh, that could be cool. But so they called and they kept calling and they said, well, okay. So I finally talked and they said, no, no. I said, oh, they, I think you said something like, oh, we're interested in, you know, your services or something. And I never even thought manager. They were like, no, 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 for, to Joe Madden. <laughs> so the managerial thing was like, oh, okay. So I, I said, I better get prepared. So I, uh, I, I talked to Tom Gamboa. I talked to... A bunch of people to get ready for this interview and i think what kind of surprised me is i was getting ready for a lot of x's and o's and there the questions you know i won't reveal your secret sauce but the questions were very much about interpersonal skills culture uh handling personalities and i i thought that was really excellent indicator of a, of a culture I appreciated because they were much more interested in how you manage people and how you surround yourself. How would you use your bench coach? And uh, and so that was just eye-opening to me, obviously never going through the process. I think one thing I, I thought I scored some points on is I think at the time the bullpen was actually really good, but kept having these eighth inning, ninth inning kind of meltdowns. And most of it was because of the defense. When you looked at their defense, they fell apart consistently in the late innings. <laughs> so you had these weird like fips and these like shifts in there. So I said, all right, that's that's my going to be my data point. But for the most <laughs> part, it was just a, a, a conversation between people. It was it was really cool. Yeah, well, I'm glad you felt that way. That that's uh, you know, I, again, the way I was raised in the game and and how I've always felt. This is a people business. Um, there's a lot of other aspects to it, of course, and information's important and the X's and O's are important, uh, but it's a people business and people and culture more than anything are what drives success in this game. And the toughest thing that a manager does is to manage all the people in that clubhouse uh, as human beings. Uh, it is, you know, the, I think the part of the job where you can make the biggest difference, either positive or negative, but that's not unique to that job. That's true about just about any job in this game. Um, 
and you know really i think that, that i've been fortunate to work with a, a number of good managers and they're all, they've all been very different from each other but that is a strength that in their own way all the, the managers that i've worked with uh, who have had success have shared is you know their ability to uh, to run the clubhouse and and to manage people and to bring the best out of players to put players in a position to succeed and we sometimes think about that in terms of the x's and o's of how we deploy them and that's important but it also gets to the environment and gets to how you set them up for success every day by uh how you handle uh your relationships with them and that's so critical uh, in that job and really in, in almost any job Doug, do you remember anything specific about Heim in the interview? Did he did he eat lunch a lot faster than you or anything? <laughs> you know, no, I, I think what, it kind of came full circle when I, I ran into Eric Neander opening day. I think it was a Rays-Yankees, and I was ESPN, and and um, we were talk, we were doing about to do a segment on Kevin Kiermeyer on his defense and how deep he plays. And we compared his depth to Adam Jones, which was the shallowest. So it was like this cool comparison. So I asked Eric about it. And of course, we remembered the interview, we kind of reminisced, and he said, uh, so I said, well, what is it about, you know, you've locked in Kevin Kiermaier for many years, what is it about him? And he said, Kevin Kiermaier's value will never be underappreciated again. And I thought that line stuck with me because especially someone who was more on the defensive side of the asset equation, I, I appreciated that Heim, many others have really taken the time to explore the value of defense, the other side of the ball. And it and it has more much more weight than it's than it's ever had. So uh, that was you know one thing that really stuck with me about since then. Obviously, Hyman and I've you know been able to keep in touch and and uh, you know I've always appreciated that. All right, Hyman, I know we need to let you go, but I I have a really important question that will serve as a gauge to how well you've acclimated to Boston. Do you know all the words to Sweet Caroline now? <laughs> Ooh, uh, you know, <laughs> so number one, I'm going to get this out of the way first and tell you that we're, we're not going to find out on this podcast. <laughs> um, you know I me too to well. Say no. I, I think if, if, if I were forced to recite them, I don't think I would be able to recite them all. Uh, uh, so do you ever sing along this week, Caroline, just so we know? I don't. Uh, but I respect those who do. <laughs> yeah, the good times never seem so good as when they're singing that song in Fenway Park, right? We got to make it happen. The Red Sox nation now has to like mandate this as their new seventh inning stretch. That would be, I think that would be fun. I think Heinz has been pretty clear. He is not singing. He can on do this it in podcast, singing right? in Latin. You can sing it in Latin. This, no, no one would know. <laughs> There you go. It's so true. <laughs> All right, Haim, I know you have to run. Uh, thanks for joining us, and especially thanks for not hiring Glanville as manager, okay? <laughs> well, at the end of the day, I didn't, you know, I know you need a, you need a co-host, so. Yeah. I'm here. You it's know, my I'm, destiny. I'm just really trying to, trying to do a public service here. <laughs> but you can trade me. You can trade me. Bring him, and that's fine. I'll be traded to Stark from Starkville. You can trade Wait, for can me. Wait, can I trade you? Time. You can trade me, yes. I, I to, can trade you to Hein. To wow, the Red Sox. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be no All right, Hein. Hein, thanks so much, man. Good luck the rest of the way to you and the Red Sox. Thank you so much. Uh, good talking to you guys. 
Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB Show. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct TV satellite free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get direct TV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream direct TV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next, you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit directtv.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Okay, it's that time again. It's time for listener trivia. Our wave involving you, our favorite listeners in the show. Uh, Doug, last week, if you remember our trivia answer, Fred Lynn, somehow magically <laughs> materialized and joined us on the show. I'm going to make a wild guess that will not happen again this week, but you never know, right? You never know. Yeah. Tim McMaster is working the controls <laughs> over there. He is. The mayor of Starkville. Yeah. That might be the only guess I get right, actually, but let, let's see. I, I, I was sure we were going to delve into no-hitter trivia again, but we got a great question from this week's special trivia guest star that we like the best, so let's bring him in so we can stump us and we can get this over with. It's Andrew Spigler. Andrew, thanks for joining us here on Starkville. Hello, Jason. Hello, Doug. All right, here we go. This is uh, one of my classics, so hopefully you guys can get it. All right, there are four Hall of Famers who have played a 1,000 games at two positions, outfield being considered one position. Four Hall of Famers, two positions at a 1,000 games. All right, so we need four Hall of Fame players, a 1,000 games at two positions. That is correct. Um, right, I'm taking I'm taking slight offense that we're lumping outfield <laughs> together like this, you know. And well, my one trivia, the one answer he fell short uh, probably about 13 games of the one outfield position. So I guess okay. I would have had him on. I think that's a good clue, Doug. Um, okay, let, just to be clear, Doug Glanville is not a potential answer here. That is correct. <laughs> and if I'm doing the math right, you need about at least seven years at each position. So. That helps yeah. us frame it. Okay, now, I had a few names, like, right off the top of my head, thought were easy. Robin Yount. That is correct. Shortstop in center one. field. Ernie Banks. Two. Shortstop and left, uh, and first base. Uh, Rod Carew. The answers as we go. Three. Right? 
second base and first base. We got three of them. That is correct. So who is the fourth? Now, Andrew, let us, let Doug and I are going to thrash this around. So sure. just let us try to get to it. You got it. Um, okay. Now, the I thought about Jim Tomei, but I th- you, you told me that DH Long is not DH, count, correct. right? Okay. So yeah, he, no DH. Can't be right. him. Thought about Stan Musial, but I don't think he played a thousand games at first. Thought about Joe Torre, caught and played third. Yes. I don't and know. He was in the Hall of Fame as a manager. That's, so that's true. Good point. Yeah. Twist. Right. Um, so. Okay. Um, now, because of the clue, Craig Bijo might come into play here. Because I'm not, like, see, I, I wasn't sure if he caught enough or played center field long enough. But if we're counting other outfield positions, he went back into the outfield late in his career. So. I, to me, he feels like the best guess, but I, there's probably somebody from like a hundred years ago. I'm forgetting. Doug, what do you got? I, you know, this was tough. I thought, well, once you, the position thing threw me off because I thought about like Ricky Henderson or something like that. But, um, you know, what about like a Chipper Jones? He played third. He hardly first. played. No, he hardly played. Not a lot of first anywhere else he played left that one year but what about Lowry Walker right he was outfield and a lot of firsts right and left but it's no there's no way he didn't play enough first base no I don't, I don't Tim Raines second base outfield uh, dog no. sticking to the 80s here and, uh, no. really yeah I, I mean that's the te- I, I, know. Second long enough. I, I, I think we should guess Biggio that's well you have Bugio and you have Biggio Tory. and but I don't like and Tory. I, they're good Tory guesses caught. should we just guess Biggio and get this over with he played outfield. He, he like he bounced, he started as a catcher, and he played second for a long time. Then he played yeah. center. Then I feel like he went back to second. Then he wound up in left. Yeah. You know, he played I a lot of games. The thousand. Played, played a long now, time. now, what's your basis for Stan Musial though? Like what he played? What what's outfield your and first base? But I don't think he played first base a thousand games. Seven yeah. years is a lot of years. Yeah. All right. All right, well, Bizio sounds like... Our- okay, all right. Well, I think that we have a shot at this. Uh, I mean, look, it's... I'm a guy who forgot Johnny Vandermeer and a question about two no-hitters two <laughs> right. weeks ago. So what do I know? But let's see if we got this. Andrew, is there any chance that the fourth answer, along with Robin Yount, Rod Carew, Ernie Banks, is Craig Bizio? That would be incorrect. Oh, 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 no. You, if you had gone with your first thought there and Stan the Man, you would have had it. Oh, it was oh, Stan Musial. Oh, man. Yes, no. It yes, it was. Oh, no. I, I, Doug, I, it's funny. I look back because, I, like I said, I've been using this question for a while, and I did have to go back and check on Biggio. Uh, I think it was only 400 and something games in the outfield. All right. So, oh, Doug, we're, we're hopeless. Good like, run. All we had to do was name four iconic Hall of Famers, and we couldn't even do that? Like, I'm starting to miss your devious cheating scheme. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you, you see my point. Right? It's like, there's, it could be anybody. I mean, I know this, you know, how many Hall of Famers are there in, in the Hall? Like, oh, three, several four, hundred, 300, but, 400? Probably, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, that's true. So, I, I, don't, I, don't, I guess I shouldn't feel that bad, but these are pretty iconic <laughs> guys. Now. So, let's see. So, I think we're now two and seven. That's 222. I, are we hitting worse than the Mariners now? Oh, my God. Uh, whatever. If you listen regularly, you know that whether we get the question right or we get it wrong, we still bring in the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster, to salvage this whole segment by playing some cool slice of play-by-play something or other that relates to our trivia question. So let's call him in. 
Mayor Tim, what do you got for us today? You know, most of these guys, it's outfield first base, which is kind of, eh, it is what it is. But one of these guys started as a shortstop and then became a great outfielder, uh, and that is Robin Yao. So I thought he was the one that we should focus on for this one. And if you look back through the great defense of Robin Yount's career, we'll go back to April 15th, 1987. Brewers in Baltimore, Juan Nieves throwing a no-hitter. Ripken on first with two outs in the ninth. The Brewers lead 7 to nothing. Hit in the air. Yount. Makes a great catch, and Juan Nieves has thrown the first no-hitter in Milwaukee Brewer history. What else can happen to this team? Juan Nieves has no-hit the Baltimore Orioles on a great game-ending catch by Robin Yount. Very good. 1987 was a big year for the Brewers. Didn't end that well, <laughs> but, but it was it was an excellent year otherwise. Uh, Doug, thank God for the mayor. You know, we embarrass ourselves every week with these questions. Then the mayor swoops in with another one of these goosebump play-by-play moments, and everybody forgets what dopes we are. It's beautiful. So, uh, so. We're, we're fine. We're, we're doing great. <laughs> two, two world championships in nine years. That's, that's pretty good. Okay. Uh, all right, Mr. Mayor, thanks for the great Robin Yant clip. And, Andrew, thanks for joining us. You guys. You had a tight schedule today. Thanks for fitting us in. Great questions. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Take care. Okay, friends, we promised you a Doug Glanville rules rant. We are going to give you a Doug Glanville rules rant here in the Strange But True segment of the show. Strange But True. This is going to be so good, but I I, I feel like we need to set the scene before we let Doug just go off. Uh, (laughs) So this is last Wednesday at Wrigley Field. Nationals playing the Cubs. Trey Turner's at the plate. He will strike out, but that's when this really gets weird and wild. Swing and a miss. The ball gets by Contreras to the backstop, and Turner is going to reach first. The throw gets by into right field, but it's backed up there by the right fielder, Bryant. No, are they calling Turner out? They're calling Turner out for the Trey Turner rule. And now Davey is running himself through the bag, and he's been tossed out of the game. Davey Martinez is ejected, and he is about sick of that rule. He's mimicking what Turner did. He's picking the base up out. He's going to pick the base out a la Lou Pinnell, and he slams it down. He slams the base and kicks the base. Davey Martinez. Wow. (laughs) Very well said. Davey Martinez. Wow. That's a wow moment. Uh, All right. Uh. We'll we'll talk about Davey Martinez's epic rant in a moment. But uh, it's time for the Doug Glanville rant that you've been promised. So, Doug, I'm going to get out of the way. It's your turn. Your thoughts on the running lane. Pretty good rule. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the running lane. You got to take a deep breath here because. Yeah, breathe. Okay. The running lane is an abomination (laughs) of baseball rules. Okay, let's just let's just start off there. Let's just think about this for a second. First of all, if I had enough free time, I would go to all major league stadiums and in the middle of the night, I would erase all the running lanes. <laughs> I would erase all the chalk. I would I would just decide, I would steal all the, the chalk and just make sure they didn't have enough to, to draw in the running lane. That's, that's the first thing that I would do. So the rule is ridiculous. Everybody knows it. I know there've been discussions on it. I think part of the problem is 
Nobody knows what to do in replace of it. So I respect that it's not necessarily easy, but you got to get there somehow and, and just accept the consequences. You might have an inelegant solution for a while. But let's just think about this for a second. If you go down the first line, first baseline, there's a lane that starts 45 feet from home, halfway between home and first. It is three feet wide and it goes continually in foul territory past the base, to the base. Now, keep in mind, I just said in foul territory. Where is the base, Jason Stark? The base is in fair where territory. Is the, ba- the base is in fair <laughs> territory. So where is this lane going? Abs- to where? To the coach's box? To the concession stand? Yes. Where is the lane going? It's going nowhere. So that's one problem. Now, let's just be. Let's just take my career. I'm a right-handed hitter. Now, let's think about this. What is the shortest distance between two points? You're what asking me again? Uh, okay, I can get this one right. I'll be two for two. Straight yes. line. Straight line is the answer. Straight line. <laughs> now, if you're a right-handed hitter and you run in a straight line, is any part of that equation putting you in foul territory in that straight line? Uh, if Going from home to first, after from you the ju- batter's you, box. You're the right-handed you hitter. The you've ball. just followed through. Your right. follow-through is taking you ball short. toward the left-handed hitter's side of the box. And now you've got a run of the bag. Yeah, straight line. This is a trick question. No, of course not. You're in fair territory. Right. You're in fair territory. Exactly. So why in the world, unless you hit a ball in the gap and you're taking a turn, why would you bow out into foul territory in an imaginary box and then come back into fair to touch the base? Why would you ever do that if you're running the most efficient route to first Because it's the rules. The rules say you have to get the heck out of the way of that catcher. Of the catcher and, and who, but, you're, but you're really a, the you're rule. A, you're, you're, you're a rule breaker. You don't want to follow right, the so, rules. So, so I, all right, so here's the deal. I hit a, I bunt to third base, and this happened to me. I bunted to third base, and the third baseman came in, got, got the ball about 45 feet down the line. I ran in the fair side of the line. They threw the ball to first. First baseman tried to reach around me. I beat the play, and they called me out for interference. What are they talking about? Who did I, like, what am I interfering on? First of all, they're major league infielders. Make the throw where you need to make the throw. It's not like you're interfering because you stuck your elbow out or you intentionally ran in the path of the throw. They, you interfered because they didn't make a good enough throw to where the first baseman could handle it. And that's their get-out-of-jail card because the lane becomes their get-out-of-jail card free. You know, get-out-of-free, whatever it is. Monopoly. Right? So that's so that doesn't make any sense. Your major league, make them make the throw. Just like Trey Turner in the Cubs game. The ball goes to the backstop. Make the throw. The, the Throw it on the foul side. of. That's it. Like, you're running down the line. I, I get it if you bow out and try to block the throw. Interference... There seems to be a to me. It needs to show intent or something. Like I'm not running. I'm running in the line in a straight line. Make the throw. You can. You have all the time in the world to step or whatever you need to do. So that's one problem. So the other problem is that first of all, you're going to stay in this lane, and then at the last minute you're going to st- you're, you're running 20 miles an hour. You're like Mike Trout going to first. You're Otani now at the last second because you're trying to create some sort of imaginary lane to give the the fielder to throw the ball to first you're going to last second at 20 miles an hour step on first base otherwise you're out of the lane and you're called out that's absurd you you how do you do that how do you actually do that you you could move laterally makes no sense so here's the best analogy i can think of the way the the rule is written 
it gives all the protection and the right of way to the de- to the defender. That's whoever's throwing the ball. The defense has all the right of way. You as an offensive player have no rights, no rights to that base. You have to get out of the way, which makes no sense because I'm trying to get a hit, trying to get to the base. You have to get completely out of the way and allow this fielder to throw the ball directly to first. Why would I do that? Make they, They're major league shortstops. Make the throw. Make the throw to the place so that you avoid the situation. But instead, I have to get out of the way for some strange reason. In foul territory, when the base isn't fair, run this inefficient route to the base, then break my ankle trying to step on the base at the last minute so I can give you a free pass to make a major league throw to first base. In football, this is the equivalent. It's having defensive interference and not having offensive interference. So therefore, if I'm the wide receiver, I could push you out of the way and catch the ball. That's what it's like. That's what the running lane is right. There's no, I have no right of way as as a runner to the base. So I think it's it's just a bad rule and people know it. And I just think it's just hard to fix because you want to account for that one scenario where A-Rod sticks his elbow out or Lenny Dykstra sticks his arm out to block the throw. But I would like to think that the umpires have the judgment to say, okay, that's clearly interference. And I've been called out on this rule enough times to know how ridiculous it is. Uh, make the throw. I'm sorry, make the throw. That's all. Major League infielders, make the throw to the place that you don't hit the runner. Yeah, if I run into the first baseman, fine. Interference. I run into the ball intentionally, fine interference. But I'm sorry. When you have a throw from third base and you make such a bad throw that it runs into me as the runner, that is on you. That's on you, Aaron hey, Boone, for that throw. Hey, I, I have good so, news for you. You're retired. Yeah. <laughs> like this, this rule will never cost you a hit again. Never. It's co- <laughs> it's cost me sleep. <laughs> it's it's cost me sanity. And so yes, I I have well, to I have to fight for this to the all end. Right, the other thing is, yeah. as, as as Dave Jager said in his beautiful play-by-play of this bizarre moment. This is not the Doug Lanville role. This is now the Trey Turner role because he had a flashback, yep. just as I did, to the 2019 World Series when he also got called out for some alleged running lane fiasco. Right. And if you remember, Davey Martinez got thrown out that night too, but he showed, at least he showed enough restraint that one, that he got, that he got thrown out of that game. After the inning was over, after his team had just taken the lead, by the way, but he, he, he didn't wait on this one, and I'm glad he didn't because it was so entertaining. Um, all right, so uh, I mean, I I would have dug up I would have dug up home plate. Okay, first of all, can't if, do that. I would like a a, a need, shovel, bring, a, a pick. I'd bring in a bulldozer. You'd need a, I'd bring you, in a bulldozer. You would need a bulldozer. All right, so think about what happened in the World Series. The umpires deliberate deliberated painfully because they knew they had to make this call and they knew it was completely absurd. So I'm not knocking the umpires. I think they've made this call correctly based on the letter of the law. My issue is the letter of the law and it doesn't make sense. The running lane is in foul territory. The base is in fair territory. I mean, come on. That's just obvious. Get and over it. You, get, get the over right-handed it. hitter, like, right-handed get, hitter get is, starts in fair territory. It. <laughs> you're, you're, it's not like there's I mean, no Trey, way this will ever torment you again. 
Like it, I mean, until they, it will, until they change it. I keep, it's still happening. Davey Martinez exactly got, he has it right. We have to get Trey Turner on the Starkville. So you like, we can spend a whole show, the two of you ranting about this rule. Oh yeah. Now like that, the one in the world series, that was like the deliberations were more absurd than the call because all right, the umpires get on the headset to, to talk to New York. New York then calls what Joe Torrey, who's sitting there like 12 feet from the umpires, but they're not allowed to talk. Like that, It was just the, the height of right. absurdity. Now, here's what was so messed up about this one, man. Um, all right, if you, if you watch this play, I've watched it a million times. Okay, Trey Turner strikes out. The ball goes flying to the backstop. He runs up the line. He touches first base. Then the ball goes then, whizzing by him into right field. How can he have interfered? He got there first. <laughs> okay, exactly. I mean, it's it, you. You literally can be called out for just scaring the infielder and scaring the person throwing the ball. I mean, like I'm sorry, like, and that's what happened on my butt. I was by the base. Didn't matter. It's the fact that I was out of the running lane. That's it. You can call him out. It's it doesn't make any sense. I mean, yeah. you don't even, you're getting interference when you didn't even interfere. And the, it's just, once again, it's a hall pass for major league infielders or throwers or whatever that should be able to make a yeah. better throw. Well, I mean, I'm sorry. Like, that's that's just the way it is. And it's it's a broken uh, rule. I don't know what they're going to do about it, though. Obviously nothing. Because it, well, it. it's providing, you know, look, it provides you stuff to rant about and write about every year. So don't complain, okay? You're retired. You actually need these things to happen so you have something to talk about. Now, we haven't I even... got to pass we, something down to my kids. Like It's got to be No, right. I do not want your kids burdened with this. <laughs> <laughs> now, we, like, we need to move on, but we haven't even talked about Davey Martinez's tremendous stolen base. And, you know, it's funny, Doug, like I actually wrote last week about the lack of stolen bases in the big leagues and what they're experimenting with in the minor leagues, you know, the whole Theo Epstein thing that he talked about on our show. And uh, a woman tweeted at me that maybe the answer was for more managers to literally steal these bases. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I'm off. I told you I'd dig up home plate with a bulldozer if I could. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think like I, an army of people erasing you know, every game, someone like runs on the field and erases it. You know, I'm not encouraging trespassing, but <laughs> I think that's reasonable. You, you could, you could, I, I don't know, but I, I, I it's clear this doesn't work, okay. but I think you put a second base and that's about it. Erase it. That's, that's the best way to do it. <laughs> okay. It's clear where you stand. Okay. Does Doug yes. Lanville like the role? Apparently he doesn't like it. So let's, okay, we're going to, we're just going to move on. The next time this thing gets called, we'll let you do it again, okay? It's like, be like the Tyra Banks story. Once a year, you'll get to do your thing, all right? Fair enough. <laughs> okay. One, all right, one more quick one I wanted to ask you about. It's another base running adventure. Uh, this is Friday night. I'm watching the Mets and Marlins. They go into extra innings. We're in, I think, the 11th inning. So the ghost runner, Doug, is in the house. Jonathan VR was the ghost runner. He started at second. Now he reaches third. Then Adam Simber, who's pitching for the Marlins, wheels and picks him off third base. And I, like I know I need help. I know my mind is just off the rails. 
but these ghost runners, I think, are making me crazy. So here's what I need to know from you. Uh, this guy has no business being on base in the first place, as you've mentioned a few thousand times. So if the ghost runner gets picked off, should it even count as a pickoff? Or is it just like the natural order of life in the universe has been restored? Yes, this is this is a, a restoration of the order, um, which I believe would be... Uh, well, it's like me erasing the running base, running lane. Yeah, that's a similar thing. It's right. It's righteous work right there. First of all, how did the guy get there? Nobody knows. We just put, you know, it's like my five-year-old just dropped the ice cream in the middle of the couch. How did it get there? I don't even know. So that is what the it's ghost runner. It's is not like. the same thing. But go ahead. Just. Just okay, so you just drop drop this runner. Can't explain it. He's like an unearned run because he didn't earn being there in the first place. That tells you all you need to know. He's an unearned run if he scores, and so it's like through no fault of the your own, Star Trek happened, and we just teleported in second base. Spock, Scotty, beam me up. So you go to third somehow, teleport, and someone picks him off. That's exactly what should happen because he shouldn't have been there in the first place. So, yeah. I, I, I love it. Okay, I think so that's uh, poetic justice. All right, so it's 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 not really a pickoff; it's a ghost busting, right? Yeah, it is absolutely. We saw the movie many years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a remake too. By I the think way. it was Dan. Was it Dan Aykroyd? Yes. Uh, Rick Moranis and who, who am I missing? I'm missing a big name here. The Bill big Murray. tall guy from Blues Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> No, Belushi, Bill Murray, yeah, Bill Murray. Come on, Chicago fans. Right, Jonathan VR was not in the movie. However, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ghostbusters. I believe that we should have a Ghostbuster team in every stadium now. And so, whenever the Ghost Runner steps on the field, they they raid second base, they put him on a gurney, and they remove him from the field with slime. And then we're all good. I think that's highly entertaining. Come on, the fans would love that. They'd love you're you're going to be on the FBI watch list after this segment, man. Like <laughs> you, you want to break into every stadium and erase the runners' lane. Then you want to yeah. have you want to attack Bye. second base every time the ghost runner shows up. You're yeah. you're a perceived slime them. I threat. Slime them. And yeah, I don't. I, I slime. That's all right. Ghostbusters. They they had a job to do and, and they did it. <laughs> yep, they did it well. They did. But this like it's a new it's a new day. It's a new age. So who are you going to call, Doug? Ghost Runner, okay? Uh, friends, that's going to do it for another fabulous edition of Starkville. Uh, you can find us every Tuesday right here in our new home as part of the Athletic Baseball Show. Every Monday, it's Ken Rosenthal's Mailbag. Thursdays, Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby doing their thing. Fridays, Keith Law and Derek Van Riper. All these shows are fantastic, so check them out. Uh, Also, the Athletic Baseball Show is available in its entirety, absolutely free, everywhere you get your podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever else you go to find your podcasts. And, of course, we are ad-free at the Athletic app and the Athletic website. We would love it if you would subscribe. And if you like what you hear, feel free to give us one of those five-star ratings. And if you'd like to read our work or any of the tremendous writing on our site, on the Red Sox, on Ghostbusting, on why nobody can hit anymore, or on your favorite team, there's no better sports writing being done anywhere than in The Athletic. So if you've thought about subscribing, 
we have our greatest special ever. Just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show and you can subscribe for just $1 a month. $1. Uh, that won't even pay Doug Glanville's bail money. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Doug, thank you for playing. Thanks to Heim Bloom for visiting us. Thanks to Andrew Spigler for the great trivia question that stumped us once again. Thanks to our mayor, Tim McMaster, for producing and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. Coming up Thursday on the Athletic Baseball Show, it's Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby. And Doug and I will see you next Tuesday on Starkville. <laughs>